Wednesday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. What was that shrill screaming noise you inserted into the opening, Glenn? What were you trying to do to me? Subliminally talk about... Subliminally. <laughs> Subliminally. Subliminally. Oh, we're off to a great technical start here. This is... Uh, it will be revealed later. It's an Easter egg that comes up, which is why you should subscribe to the podcast. It'll be talked about in greater detail on the podcast. We'll be discussing more films this week. Miss Scene. Um, yeah, we'll be talking about The Gentleman, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and Bombshell. But on the show today, we are talking about two flicks, one which is in Cinema Snow, the new Terrence Malick flick. We're finally reviewing a Terrence yes. Malick movie. The patron saint. A hidden, hidden life. Fight club. We reviewed Song to Song, didn't we? Sort of. Oh, we oh, 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 yeah, 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 That's true. We talked yeah. about the Warcats, the 60 Warcats, the, right? Remember that? It might have been more, I think. Yeah. yeah, we'll be talking about our other patrons, St. David Lynch, next week. What did Jack do with a number of other streaming f- films that are streaming? But the other film we are covering, which is in cinemas, traditional cinema, this week is 1917, which is getting a lot of plaudits um, across the different industry awards and maybe up for a Best Picture nod very, very soon. Yeah, that happened. But first, we are talking about Terrence Malick's A Hidden Light. But did we introduce ourselves? We did not. This is Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen. Chris Evans and Virat Nehru. So, A Hidden Life. It is starring August Steele, Valerie Puckner, Matthias Schoenhertz, and in their final feature narrative roles, Bruno Ganz and Michael Nyquist. It is set in Austria. Yes, in the village of St. Radigand, where uh, Franz Jägerstatter decides to go against the belief of, of his town when Nazism sweeps in and decide that he cannot swear an oath of allegiance to Adolf Hitler and will not serve the military in any way. And the film basically uh, depicts what happens uh, as a result of his actions and the strength of his resolve. The film is in English English language predominantly, predominantly, excuse me, but there is also German language used throughout in some Italian. It's interesting, actually, because I'm not quite sure whether his main objection was that I don't want to swear an oath allegiance to Hitler or whether or not... I want to be able to participate in the war effort. I think he's less strong on the fighting and the front thing. It's more the Hitler, allegiance to Hitler thing, I which is the major detraction. felt both, and the distinction wasn't too heavily drawn, but I felt both were heavily at play. I think I agree that both uh, were at play, but I think it speaks to the fault of the film a little bit that we're not so clear on that. I think the film needs to go much more heavily into the politics um, of his ideology than it does. Obviously, that's not Malik's intention. Malik is doing what Malik does, and he's making a really lyrical portrait of good and evil, basically. Like a lot of Terrence Malik films, it basically shows you an Eden at the beginning, and it's about the fall from Eden. For me, there were two scenes that really interrogated his mindset. One was in a yard, where it involves a strong narration, and the other was in a room later. What, what scene are we talking about? It's one where he is cleaning some, some stuff up in a yard, and he's talking about nature more generally, and he's using it, making it analogous to his experience. Right, but the, the, yeah, because most of the time, the film doesn't actually interrogate what he thinks beyond that he is really really noble and we should love him because he's so noble he's filmed in beautiful light and we know that hitler is bad um it it worked politically 
it, 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 I found it really, really shallow. It's affirming, but as from a narrative perspective, it doesn't, and we'll go into this more great detail, but it doesn't offer all that much, especially over the course of three hours. And, and that's correct. I think the interrogation does come, but I think it comes in too late, and I think the introspective aspects that we're kind of hoping, or at least I was hoping for more often in the film, came during the trial sequences, and there is a beautiful confrontation scene that takes place, which really does uh, you know, shed a light. Bruno Guns? Yes, and, and also the morality aspect that we're looking at about do you judge me and that kind of confrontation thing that happens mm. about uh, judgment perceive and, and you know and what he does feel yeah. but unfortunately for a film that weighs so highly on morality uh, I just wasn't clear for the majority of the narrative as to why I was supposed to care for most of it which is why I think the film really didn't connect with me as strongly as I wanted it to yeah I th- I think what I was going for before what I was talking about is that it kind of um, it wants you to to just buy into this kind of idea of this person's noble because he's backed by beautiful music and he's <laughs> depicted in beautiful scenes and look at all these the angry faces of the people who oppose him and they're great and they're great it's beautifully shot I mean yeah that's but like maybe this is too much of a reach but is um <laughs> is this that different from Riefenstahl's style of filmmaking that we're shown clips of at the beginning where it's like this guy's great because we film him in a flattering camera angle. Obviously, Jägerstarter was in morally right in a way that Hitler was yes, definitely this not. We, no, this is based on historical events. Yes, this, this is this is something that, that happened. However, um, all I'm saying is that filmmaking needs to interrogate the reasoning why. Otherwise, it's just kind of shallow myth-making. You know, this person's great because we have all the tools of cinema behind us to make him look noble. I think it's more than that. I think that Malik is going for a much greater philosophical point, which is alluded to explicitly at one time, and it's the idea of whether what he is doing is in fact the right thing, whether he perpetrating or being complicit in small acts, in acts of violence is a good is a good or the righteous response in this circumstance mm. to broader acts of violence. The film doesn't go to a great deal to interrogate that, and it's because it doesn't present him with any... For the last two acts, what he's presented with, his choice, it is static. And you That's compare right. it to a film like Silence. Silence. We, Malik, apparently, I read, was very inspired by Silence, um, as I think everyone here on Film Fight Club was. I it think was our film of the year a couple of years back. Yeah, it's one of the, the best films, I think, of the last 10 years. And Silence really changed the scenario. Um, Silence threw in complications. Silence interrogated the beliefs of the Christian martyrs who were being confronted with a choice, basically, to about saving people versus holding on to their moral, their moral values. The contradictory terms of his faith, the idea that if I commit what I perceive as an act of, of a non-devotion to faith in the face of halting violence, is that the right thing to do? And there are contradictory elements at play here. What is, what is right? This is explored here, or touched on, again, explicitly with reference to the circumstances that will befall He's Francis' family should he decide to do this, but it isn't given much depth. We are, there's much more focus on and the imagery and else within the film. But as you said, it's it's a three-hour film. I think there are maybe ways that are less traditional than Scorsese's approach in silence to interrogate these ideas. I think Malik interrogates a lot um, more interesting ideas about the place of evil 
um, and doing the right thing in the Thin Red Line just through purely visual um, and poetic uh, techniques. In, because this film is so focused on one character in one circumstance, it needs to. It, it just need. It requires more variation. It requires conflict on a very basic level. I mean, it's an interesting point that you brought up about Thin Red Line because I was thinking whether or not Malik's style of filmmaking for this film and this narrative particularly was a major hindrance because, you know, you've gotten used to that style of filmmaking now that there is beautiful images overlaid with, you know, background voiceovers. Uh, But at this point, I felt like that kind of easygoing static where you take about 30, 40 minutes to set up the scene and that kind of garden feeling kind of feel was necessary because it really required a much more introspection and some deeper philosophical questioning right from the bat. Well, the... I think actually a lot happens. Um, it takes about an hour for the for the conflict to happen. But as Glenn said, the next two hours are basically static. I thought um, the opening of the film, to say something positive about it, I thought was was really beautiful. I think he depicts the the Eden of this place with the um, fa- family life, farm life, incredibly beautiful cinematography of the mountains and the villages. Um, but the forces that he's in opposition to. Uh, very much static it, it's basically there's some mean faces there's people who come in and shove him we th- nothing happens in this film that doesn't get repeated another two more times at least yeah. so you can't just have one scene where uh the villagers act disgustingly to the central couple because they fanny is franz's wife um because they they're refusing to fall into line with the fascists you need to have two three more scenes where people throw things at them, people spit at them, people yell at them, people tumble over in the fields. And eventually, I stopped caring. There's just too much of everything. There's a very simple cause to effect in this film. Things that happen are supposed to inform character decision-making, but there are no obstacles thrown, which either challenges Franz further or us for that matter. It doesn't shelter us, shift the moral perspective. I like the first act for, for great reason that... The conflict, while it is made explicit at times, is told through the pain in the actors' faces. It's, it's shown that I have this idyllic lifestyle and what I would be giving up if I were to take either part. Exactly. And, and the, the way that Malik depicts love is so beautiful. Like that's one of his great strengths as a director, the way that this central relationship is sketched out um, in really simple but poetic images. It's, it's really moving. It is. And uh, I think in the third act especially, and if you're talking about static and in what he's actually acquired from an emotional point of view, there is, uh, once again, harking back to silence, and this, this was a very silence-like scene in sequence, especially the kind of uh, dialogue he has with the the person who's restoring the church. Oh, yeah, the, gu- the guy who about talks about painting a real Christ and yes, being afraid yeah, because I, he hasn't I, suffered. I, yeah. I, I paint the Jesus that people want to see, and I think that was interesting. That was an interesting But also, there's sure. not enough of that, because it's clearly trying to go for a moral... Uh, high ground, or at least a moral kind of ambiguity that that characters are supposedly wrestling with. Yeah. But you never get to see that. You never get to feel that because, uh, especially uh, when the France is presented with choices, and the choices never feel real because the choices are. You always know he's never going to. He always know his decision in the end because it just feels. That's like exactly right. He's already made up his mind. He never wavers. To contrast it to silence. Silence was about characters who start wondering, "Am I doing the right thing?" Um, 
what actually would God like me to do in this circumstance? A real dilemma. This, yeah, in this uh, he is this guy is put through a lot of trials and suffering, but it basically comes down to tasteful torture porn because none of it makes him change his mind. It's just about us watching the noble saint be punished by bad evil people who have big wide angle close-ups of their ugly mean faces. <laughs> to turn to the example of silence again, what made it so compelling for me, I'm not a person of Christian faith, but, and my background teaches me that if I were in that circumstance to act very differently as the Andrew Garfield character would have, but throughout the film, I became to empathize with him me to too. the point the final sequence, it, the penultimate sequence of the film was so powerful. Nothing near equivalent to that here. No, it it fails. It sort of it's taken for as for granted that we are the, we are righteous in the audience, and we will agree with what he's doing because because Nazis are bad, and it never really tries to get us inside what's happening in his mind or any kind of internal conflict. It's interesting because because of that, uh, Franz kind of seemed to me like a very cold-hearted prick. By interesting, you know, because he's basically subjecting his family to a lot of torture and a lot of misery, which he could that, have avoided, actually. Well, again, that's, that would be a great debating point if we could have explored that more, if we understood the family's mindset more, the consequences thereof. Uh, the, he, the, we, we don't. It's just a very flat depiction of noble suffering. Yeah, he's very holier than thou. Can I say s- something about the, the uh, German and English mix, which is that sometimes <laughs> it was a bit silly. Like, there's one scene where... Um, some angry Nazi jumps up and starts screaming in German, and oh, then yeah. suddenly Bruno Ganz says in English immediately afterwards, "The court is adjourned." I didn't mind and that. I, I, I don't mind the fluid uh, use of either. I appreciate when my German is very limited. I can understand a few words in the film, but I liked when the emphasis the emphasis meant more necessarily than um, what the literal meaning was. I enjoy that in cinema. We got a lot of that here. Turning to uh, what Chris alluded to earlier, the imagery in this film, something that's always frustrated me about Malik, um, Voyage of Time is an exception, is that he inserts natural, naturist imagery into movies to make a broad thematic point. In this film, it was more relevant because it was simply the environment. It was reflecting the setting. It was integral to Franz's mindset. Therefore, I liked it. There were some, and there were some stunning images in this film, the capturing of the mountains, the waterfalls, a beautiful sequence in the trees. Just farming life. I think the, far, oh, the, 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 the tending of the fields was gorgeous oh, in the beginning. I don't think, um, I don't think the, the way that the use of natural imagery um, was integrated in was that much different from what Malik usually does because here it, it's really it's just standing in for beauty or maybe like the beauty of God's creation versus you know the kind of these harsh um, brick environments of the the jails and the places that Franz gets carted around to be interrogated more. Um, but something that I did appreciate uh, changing in Malik's style was that he's let go of the poetic voiceovers. With the voiceovers here are much more literal. They're people reading out letters and if um, more and Terrence Davies like yeah, more Terrence Davies. Right, <laughs> I appreciated right. that too. Um, and. I think it was a good choice because here the, the more simple down-to-earth language of the voiceovers worked for the narrative. It, um, it was something much more easier to empathize with than the poetic style of voiceover, which I've really liked in some previous Malik films, but I think especially in his last few, he'd pushed it beyond as far as it could go and it was getting really silly and overwritten, overflowery kind of purple language. And I think the letters really worked because they were really good devices to show the passage of time. Yeah. Because you could see the daughters growing up and through the letters exchanging, you know, dear lovely wife, now this new season has come. So it's a really interesting way to show passage of time. And I think it was actually one of the more heartwarming aspects which really m- made me connect with some of the characters' internal monologues. Yeah, it's it's the romance which I think is the most affecting part of the film and really the best takeaway from it. Um, 
a last point on this. Malik saved one of his best images last. So it's one of my favorites that I've seen from him. It's a beautiful shot of a char- track shot of character on a motorcycle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so gorgeous. It, it, and it has thematic relevance because you see light to change as relevant to the story. I think he just put, saw this and said, this is the best thing I filmed this whole project. I'm just going to put it in at this juncture. It works. Yeah. And it's worth sitting through. I mean, I think the film could have been a dramatically shorter. It honestly shorter. could have been 90 minutes to two Look, hours. It's a good film. It's just double the length it needs to be. That's right. That's it. We would be much less critical of the repetition of its points if um, if there wasn't so much repetition yeah. of the points. I think because no, it would have been out of there by 8 instead of 9.30. Yeah. Silence, to one last comparison. Silence was... Uh, Nearly three hours, but that that had but a it evolving. Like it. No, it didn't because there was a lot going on intellectually, and because it had a constantly evolving approach this felt to like the six hours. moral quandary. Yeah, it, this is going for a much more, I think, um, forceful, emotive, as opposed to an intellectual probing of this man's beliefs. And I think that approach just doesn't lend itself to three hours. If you're going for a simple kind of parable, two hours, ninety minutes—that's enough. But I think Malik actually wants to be intellectual and he kind of doesn't know how to do it. I think what, that's he's, the what he's trying to do is make you feel the suffering by ma- by elongating this film so that, you know, I think the same, same thing happened again and again and again and again is, is meant to make us suffer and put us in Franz's position. But at a certain point, it stops working. Yeah, but we did suffer. Yeah. So that is, Hidden Life is in cinemas tomorrow. Um, you're listening to Film Fight Club with Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans and Marat Nehru. And the next film we are talking about is Sam Mendes, 1917, based on, by his account, the experiences of his ancestor who serves in the First World War. It is starring... Oh, it's also the cinematographer, importantly, is Roger Deakins. We'll get to cinematography in a moment. It is starring George Mackay, Dean Charles Tap- Chapman, Tommen from Game of Thrones, Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, Mark Strong, and Benedict Cumberbatch. It is about two soldiers who are tasked with traveling to um, an area several kilometers away to inform a commander of two battalions that they are about to venture into an ambush with the opposing German forces. If they fail in this mission, they expect that 1,600 uh, British and soldiers of Allied groups will be killed. And importantly, the film, uh, what is much of the publicity has surrounded is that it appears to have been shot in one unbroken shot it is not it is spliced together um i don't think they've been clear as to how many shots it actually is but people debate many, I would many. Say. um it's sometimes it's obvious sometimes it's seamless in my view yeah and Virat, what did we think of 1917 well i didn't like it i didn't like it one bit uh the the problem okay the the, the beautiful thing about 1917 or the supposedly beautiful thing about it is that it's supposedly making a grand political statement about the futility of war really through a personal story about trying to find uh, you know uh, the brother, so that that is the kind oh, yes. of part um, of the film. The other part we didn't mention is that the brother of one of the two soldiers is in one of the battalions who is expected to go into the, this ambush. So, so basically, it's it's a quest narrative that's a race against time. So, if they don't reach in time, then the brother of one of these uh, soldiers is out there to warn warn the battalion is going to go out there and going to be killed essentially. So, there is this personal uh, need to go out there and actually not just save all these lives in the abstract sense, but save one real life as well, which is why it kind of feels like a race against time kind of film as well. Uh, so that is the conceit. Whether it works, I don't think it does, because for most of it, mostly because of Roger Deakins' brilliant cinematography, it looks beautiful, but it doesn't serve a point. It doesn't serve a purpose beyond, like, oppression porn. Why are people... I would not characterize this as oppression porn. Um, I would disagree with your point, but Christopher... Aren't we sick of single-take movies by now? <laughs> It's or such okay. a gimmick. 
And, uh, the, and there aren't many single-take films. There's a few. There's Watch the Sunset, Victoria. I haven't seen Russian Ark. Um, there's a lot of films with long single-takes in them. Children and Men popularized it, and then Birdman later. Because yeah. a, a Spectre did it. That wasn't very good. That, that, there have been so many look it's in one take, even if it's not the entire film, because that's so hard to do. But there's been such a focus on single-take sequences or single-take movies, and they almost always bring out the same flaws, and it's such a gimmick. Like, it, it rarely strengthens the film. In the case of 1917, I think it seriously torpedoed it. I think the entire movie is a hostage to being a single take um, for a number of reasons. One, supposedly this is uh, heightening a sense of immersion. But it for me, it's always drawing attention to the artificiality of the staging. Like, the um, there's this really advanced um, timeline where, you know, we go from one theme park ride scene to the next theme park ride scene five minutes later and we're always in the wrong place at the at the wrong time for the biggest explosion roller coaster thing to happen. And it stops making this feel like real war and starts making it feel like CGI. Like you should see it in 40X with the seats moving. Um, but sorry, Glenn, you want... This oh, no, I... I, I want to hear you finish point, but I, dis, I disagree with strongly with both texts. I knew you weren't such fans, but I am very surprised. I Did think you really the, like 1917? I liked it a lot. The critical... Wow. I, I, I know most people I've spoken to have had mixed views. Um, I'm not... I don't think it necessarily deserves the accolade it's getting in light that Parasite and Marriage Story and other better films are out there. I do think it's an outstanding picture. Um, but I want to hear more about the technical side of things, and then I'll get into it. Okay. Um, I found at the, the longer the film went on, the more distanced I felt because there's a kind of perfection to the framing and the cinematography. And, and you know, people are always tumbling down into rivers or, you know... I, I won't spoil all the set pieces, but the camera's always in the right the right place to capture people in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, there's this extreme ex, uh, acceleration of the timeline. It feels like characters are getting funneled between set pieces, and that really gave me a sense this is like a video game, like Uncharted, where we're watching an action movie hero run through Indiana Jones-type scenes, except it's World War One. There's even a mine, a mine shaft part. Okay, this... You've said that there's a lot of films that do the one take. I th- I appreciate Victoria much more than this. I think it actually did it in one take. Still, from a technical perspective, even though it is several one takes, it is a marvel in that respect. I think um, I take the view, however, that this film, this environment, this narrative lends itself to the one take form better than Watch Sunset, which is a pretty, for instance, which is a pretty standard crime thriller, or Victoria, which is also a crime thriller. Um, because it is a race against the clock, there is an urgency to it. There is compulsivity to it, which involves us. And in the, f- the fact that we have to follow this journey along the way, I appreciate there are time lapses. I'll get to that in a moment. It makes us feel like we're more actively involved, as you wouldn't have, because you wouldn't know the span of distance. Unless a lot of people, unless they've studied the history, unless they've physically been to Verdun or the some of these places, wouldn't necessarily know how short or how fast these places are. But this situate just in that circumstance the time lapses um, were a little bit frustrating but to the extent that we follow along with the characters rather than the environment and time itself it's not like a 24 jack bauer-esque narrative where it's minute by minute by minute um i did uh, i did appreciate that the cinematography i liked some of the dips and weaves i think during the day sequences where deacons has always been best in darker environments we saw him blade runner 2049 he he substituted the the quality of the imagery for what he could move the camera down and up through ditches and into mine shafts, which isn't as compulsive as we see later in the film when it gets to the night era, and it's simply much more beautiful. Uh, Having said that, 
from a technical perspective, I haven't seen a one-shot film which has been able to manage something like this, and I really appreciated it. I think, for me, um, I, I started to just think, okay, it's in one shot, but who cares? Like, um, <laughs> You know what this reminded me of? And yeah. This is going to be a, you know, a, a stretch, but book smart. You how, know? So, how so? So, in, in, you know how in Booksmart, basically, it feels like you have your core bunch of characters, the, the two leads, who basically land up in crazy situations. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one after another, and it's and, like, and, and you and start kind of to think, why, how, do, okay, this is know, all happening in one night. But and, but that's meant to be a zany but, comedy, whereas yeah, this but, is meant to be, like, it, a realistic World War One movie. Thing, but that's the thing. But the whole construction while, makes it feel like it a theme park. Yeah, or a video game. I did, But I didn't feel the events were inconsistent with historical record or what routinely did happen on the Western Front. Certainly, there were much more extreme circumstances that recurred on a regular basis during the First World War. This is simply an account, again, based on historical record. So I don't have a problem with that at all. But this film is not literally based on historical record. It's not. It's 100% a fictional story. The, Sam the, Mendes says he's inspired by hearing stories from his grandfather, but it's, it's 100% a script. Yeah, I understood it was based on accounts. No, it's, okay. this, it's not based on accounts. It's a, it's but a fictitious so, so, narrative. But so there's nothing that happened in this story which did not actually happen at different junctures during... The first world However, war to see them the funneled front. into one one snaking, winding camera movement is a bit much. It like it just it at the same time the film's doing contradictory things, which is insisting on one hundred percent realism and creating While, this wildly artificial. There was nothing so outlandish that make me believe it could happen in succession in that context. There Absolutely are, not. Oh god! Whole, I, I would oh like to god. talk about this, but I can't without giving away the yeah. movie. My favorite part of the film was. Andrew Scott's uh, whole scene of 80 seconds. He basically. was great. He was there in for, uh, as Leslie. But the thing is, what he communicated, uh, this haplessness and just the despair of being sent out to war and then sending out these two kids, uh, I was expecting more of that kind of considered take on what war does to you. And I think uh, th- there was a little bit of that. hinting that with George Mackay's character and, and yeah. how the medal and he has sold it off. But the way it was written, f- to me, felt like war cliches. Oh, it didn't it, it to me was. like it felt to me like a script made up of people running between the most stock standard war story cliches. But like, but that's the thing. After a while, it did feel like oh, what's the next worst thing that they could were extremely to rooted guys? in again routine occurrences on any respective side during the first world. But war. here they all are in one in one uninterrupted stream. I think uh, the whole... Uh, don't get me started on the whole... Uh, the, 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 the mother with the baby. Oh God. Biggest that was, movie that was, cliche of all. That was the um, worst. That, that I, certainly I, happened in French villages. But the thing is, again, when right. you string all these things into one, it's like... It, it's like, this is World War One, baby. Again, We've got the, all the, the things you want to see in by, World War I story. By course of the narrative, the characters aren't remaining in a static environment. They're moving between environments. And yes, they all would characters who are in those environments or soldiers who are in those environments would would regularly come across such circumstance it is not a stretch of the imagination after, but we're talking about like a few hours after apparently, a bunch but, but, but apparently all that land the Germans have supposedly pillaged pieces. they've left nothing but destruction in their wake and suddenly you have this village with this mother and child's Intact. And there so are like, there are many accounts of such stories. Uh, well, there are many accounts of well, a lot of things happening, but yeah, miracles the, do the, happen. The it's thing, not a miracle. Certainly, the, the, the this, this certainly this occurred around Verdun and the Somme, Fashionelle, all these places. You um, pray during the war, during the war, without question. The biggest problem was I'm supposed to follow these two characters who I don't care about at all. I agree. I didn't connect the with film. them. I I felt like they, they were. They, they felt like I felt like they were flat. I felt like they were cliched in their construction. They, they were absolute dunces, and I wanted them to die <laughs> in the first five minutes. Wow. Oh, okay, well, I, I, don't, I don't think they wanted them to die. I don't think 
there were dunces. <laughs> I won't go that, that far. I will agree with you in 50%. I will agree with you in regards to one character who is a very earnest, but a very straightforward, singly dimensional character. Yes, you can empathize with him, but there's something especially interesting about him. The other character, there is internal conflict, and we see that more in the latter half of the film develop. And it also, and it makes their journey, what they have to go through, um, significantly more engaging. So I will agree with you with respect to one character, but not the other. I, but also, I, how bad is the dialogue? You know? It's terrible. You, the you script know, when is Ma- really bad. When, when Mark Strong yeah. says some men just love the fight. The, no, to like, be honest, know, that part I didn't mind. Mark Strong's character, at least, was some variation from what we're getting in it with the two leads. Yeah. As was Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, I, I, these characters at least Cumberbatch gave us... Was great. Yeah, they at Colin least gave Fer- us some contrast. Colin, Colin Firth was just an info dump. He just didn't need to I, be... Yes, he was. I don't think that... Uh, I mean, his, his character was stoic and made sense, but uh, we didn't learn too much about him. We only introduced him at a and, and, one, and, one critical juncture. And, and, and your token uh, sick, uh, you know, person with, with the turban just... Uh, therefore, comic relief. I don't think it, was, it wasn't really the, the, comedy. The thing about I didn't find it funny. the cinematography. Well, I, that's the problem. No, this, uh, I, I, the, cinema, the cinematography. I don't think was actually that impressive. Like, I, I think it's a single take movie. Okay, great, cool. Um, but there, there are scenes which seem designed to be a tech demo for what Deacons can do when it goes into nighttime. But it, I barely think this is some of the best cinematography of the year. I think it's just that it's Roger Deakins doing a single take film, so people fall into line. Um, but. I really think the whole approach to this was wrong. I think the idea of a single-take World War One movie that's in the trenches is great, but it, I think it should have really tried to stick to realism instead of trying to create the, this action movie narrative. So we are going to be continuing the discussion about 1917 on the podcast. We'll also be talking about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Bombshell, and The Gentleman. Please subscribe on iTunes Spotify and let us know what you'd like us to fight about. And please stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. Next week we're talking about The Lighthouse, which will be in cinemas soon, and a lot of streaming films, Uncut Gems, What Did Jack Do, The History of the Kelly Gang, and potentially Two Pope Seaberg. And we were talking about, talking about doing Dolomite for a while, so that could be coming up. Dolomite is my name, yeah. Dolomite is my name, yeah, the new Eddie Murphy film. Um, and we'll just be in time for Oscar too yeah so those things good night from us gentlemen yes oh we i'm looking forward that'll be next up the gentleman right after we finish with 1917 so this has been glenn falkenstein chris evans and bright nehru on film fight club take care dudes have a wonderful night good night enjoy movies and good night welcome back to film fight club so we're going to talk more about 1917 but i think we've actually wrapped everything we wanted to say about it yeah we kind yeah, of fooled feel you as though um, fooled you guys actually <laughs> Virat just showed me a link with a point of it about it that I um, think is true that I've also seen a few other people discussing which is like is this actually and really an anti-war movie because I think it I, I 100% what was the critic's name who made that point uh, Brian Phillips yeah I think he's right I, um, that it's one of those movies that presents itself as anti-war but is actually to steal his words directly basically uh, is is actually in love with war because of the cool set piece opportunities that it presents. Yeah, it goes yeah. back to the the question of can there ever be an anti war film that depicts combat? Because even films that have been uh, claimed to be anti war, like Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, people um, though whether those films are anti war is very debatable. I think Apocalypse um, Now is, or at least is trying to talk locker, about less le- less about the actual set pieces of war and more about what it does to people. Right. But I think that's one way of getting around that. But problem. nonetheless, when you watch Apocalypse Now, when you watch the Ride of the Valkyries sequence, you do kind of come away going like, whoa, cool, a little bit, even though it's kind of horrifying. But but actually, actually and that's an interesting point, because is that 
a fault of the film or right. is that a fault of our psychology and how we've been hardwired to think <laughs> over so many years that war is cool and people like in these extreme situations like any kind of extreme danger is cool but mm. I don't think this at all applies to 1917 it doesn't aggrandize or glamorize war oh, further it what? is a s- a, a further it further it is a sobering film which shows about the impact on individual psyches uh, as well, not just the physical state, but emotionally. Certainly, it begins and ends on these points, but I feel it covers this ground throughout. I don't I think don't, there was anything I, and sobering. And there's nothing equivalent to the Ride of the Valkyrie sequence in this movie. I mean, if you just see those shots of how many empty shells are lying there, there's nothing that's sobering sad. about that. I, I th- that's tragic. I think, I think the film, personally, I thought it kind of had its cake and ate it too. I think there's a lot of like old old school like hero valorization kind of thing going on but at the same time it tries to show the consequences you're right chris i mean just a setup of this you know that uh you have your lead protagonists who are supposedly there to overcome insurmountable odds it it does kind of feel like it's tailor-made for that kind of a hero worship narrative yeah um, and it's not a problem when you're portraying the types of missions which soldiers were required to go on regularly or not irregularly. Certainly this particular circumstance wouldn't happen every day, but war films regularly show things that are unusual or exceptional, and there's nothing about this that in film that, as I said earlier, I believe could feasibly or likely did not happen over the course, over the course of those of four years. But, but it, there's no self-awareness. This is not like Black Adder Goes Forth, which is so incredibly aware of what it's trying to do. This is just like... Let's set up some set cool set pieces and see what happens. You know. Yeah, I felt like the main thrill of this movie is like, look at how cool this guy is. Does he get well? Th- I'm I'm being a bit too critical there. It's it's ju- it's more of like you are supposed to become immersed in this guy's story because he keeps going through insanely yeah adversity. Uh, There's so much adversity to yeah, be overcome. N- Near death situations stacked on top of each other. And remember, this isn't a typical hero worship story. In those sorts of stories, you see people actively going after getting down as many enemy combatants as they can. This is a story where two characters are tasked with evasion with a covert mission. It's a very different style. And as said before, I don't believe there's anything about the scenes that do feature violence which treat them in the in the overtly glamorous way that many war films of the 50s routinely did. This is a wholly different style. For me, a a big issue with it was it just didn't feel realistic. It didn't feel authentic, I think is probably the word. I feel like early on, it's when they're first crossing the Western Front at the beginning of the movie, um, the there's a bit of a focus on on gore to show you just the, the horror of this environment but as the film went on it honestly felt kind of sanitized a little bit to me yeah i mean there is a car you know bodies and carcasses and everything else and no man's land but it just felt like you know i could see these in sort of robert lang photographs right and it's going to be like us great war photography and it's beautiful and in its horror but it's kind of like too picturesque. I, but it's, the fact is, this was a realistic circumstance. Many people who want to know about this history will seek out cinema. Certainly this film will get more reach than most other films that cover this history. And I don't think it's a problem with them showing the realities of war. It's not um, overly in your face. It's not um, in the foreground where these characters are messing in the background. It shows the characters' interactions in these environments. But, 
But like, if you want to say war is bad, you have to make your audience feel uncomfortable. You can't just try they to do. I, try I to just deliberately. What really? I, I, felt, I, I felt like you know, it was it was just trying to show you early on. S- I think they somewhat it, an ugly face, but then shy away from it because, like, in case it gets too uncomfortable, we're not going to show you the extent of it. Yes, yeah, you know, uh, early on, it's there's more of a focus on the uh, discomforting brutality of it, but towards the end of the film. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the climax. I'm talking about... I I can't go into too much detail here, but... Um, oh, man, no. I, I can't talk about this at all. But basically, there's a situation that I think would be way, way, way more gruesome and horrific than what, what we see in the film. Yeah. And the fact... Mm-hmm. And some of the more gruesome sequences were around the th- throughout the third act. Certainly, the most uh, visually overwhelming things I saw and that I recall um, did happen as they were traveling through trenches and areas. Yeah. Um, in, and we have to remember, again, this is a non-traditional war narrative. We're not seeing um, violence as frequently and actively as you would in the depiction of um, a battle. This is very different. Um, it's also, it, it's strange also how similar this is in plot to Peter Weir's Gallipoli, a great war film, also about runners who are tasked with um, delivering messages during the First Gal- World War. Gallipoli, I think, is much more authentic than this. I, I, I would agree. I don't. There's not an aspersion for me on 1917. I think it's a very good film for the reasons said. I do, however, think if persons who thought this was a good film should certainly seek out um, one of the great filmmakers, and I think even as valued as he is, one of the underrated filmmakers of our era, it's mm. a masterpiece. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 a film. Um, a film uh, by Sam Mendes. <laughs> <laughs> so that is 1917. It is in cinemas now, and in a couple of weeks maybe we'll be talking about it uh, in the context of the Oscars because it, it could do very well. They love Sam Mendes, don't yeah. they? Yeah, I look, cannot. Look, he was robbed to Road to Perdition. I cannot, Absolutely, I, yeah, Chicago won the year. Can't Chicago. make up for it by giving it to an. No, know, a I can't believe film. this was nominated for best original screenplay. Yeah, I mean, I like, can't really just. <laughs> is this, just, is this just the best? Like, yeah. Is this really the best screen? One of the best screenplays of the year? <sighs> like, I would have thought the screenplay would be considered widely considered to be the weak link of this. Yeah, personally, I mean, like it's not a screenplay-driven film. No, it's relatively, it's relatively straightforward. Yeah, and it's, that's not a problem. No, because it's it's right to have a simple. This is a, this is a mission. Your job is to go from A to B. Yeah. That's fine. But clearly, it shows that how much you choose to accept. Clearly, it shows how much they love Mendez in this film, though that they nominated this for best original screenplay. I mean, so you're right. It's, it's a serious threat of winning best picture. Uh, I hope yeah. it doesn't happen. Um, I think for, uh, for our, again limited Oscars coverage, I think I think it will if Parasite doesn't pull a Moonlight type okay. moment. Parasite is getting released in black and white from February 9th. It's again, it's these gimmicks. You know, George Miller did it, and now suddenly it's like we've got a you know black and white edition. Yeah, well, I'm going to watch it again. Well, yeah, 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 there was the Mad Max yeah. Fury Road black and white edition. Oh no, Mad Max, I remember, but Parasite. Yeah, yeah it's I don't from, see what from benefit that's going to bring. The images are beautiful. The colors are great were. in Parasite. What? Why? Why? I don't know. It makes no sense. I don't know. I'm yeah. gonna watch it again. An excuse to go watch it again in the cinemas. <laughs> yeah. Um, is are there? What What do we think? What else could win Best Picture? <sighs> Here's our limited Oscars coverage. We, <laughs> right, we so sneak look, it look. in between segments of, that we care more about. Uh, right, look, it's not going to be a Little Women. No. It's not going. It could Parasite. Maybe it, it won't could be, be 1917. It won't be Marriage Story. Um, it won't be Ford v Ferrari. Uh, are no. you sure? I'm. I'm. I'm sure. Yeah. Will it be Joker? No. I don't think so. I either. don't think people. But are it's gonna, possible. What else are the... Uh, there's a couple more we've oh missed. Oh, my God. Uh, a, thing, a thing I just, like, internally puked. What, at uh, the idea of Joker winning Best Picture? <laughs> yeah. A uh, Jojo Rabbit? Yeah, I don't think it'll win. Will not be a Jojo Rabbit. And there no. was, we've got eight. There was one more that we're... 
not counting. I think 1917. Seems like it's going to be 1917. I, I think it's 1917. <laughs> Wait, what? Unless Parasite has a major upset. Because there's 1917. W- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I, again, it, okay. I, 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 think I, can, I can swallow Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I think 19, <laughs> there's enough people who are going to vote at first. Remember, it's proportional voting like the Senate. 1917 <laughs> has enough backing within Hollywood generally. It'll, it will be the consensus favourite, I so, think. It'll be so funny, though, because look at how Nolan did a World War II movie and still couldn't get nominated for Best Director. And then, did he get nominated for Dunkirk? I don't think he did. I don't think he did, no. Yeah, and then Mendes no, but, 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 comes but, but, along <laughs> with but, but, a less-loved no, no. film. No, wait, I think Dunkirk was nominated, though. It was nominated for Best Picture, but not Best Director. Yeah. It's like, no. it, they, they it, just really don't like Nolan for some reason. Well, he went away makes made good Batman movies. So. Well, he, he also gets more money, and like he's uh, he's got the crowd. Yeah, Tenet, please release Tenet. We want to know more. So, yeah, well, um, yes, dreams, reality, so, sleep, so, life. Who knows? So there's a, there's our Oscars coverage. I've seen all nine now. Oh dear, uh, Parasite's favorite. Marriage Story would be second for me. It's uh, I think my but, favorite is Marriage Story. Then it's either Parasite or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'd have to rewatch them, but I really loved both those films. Yeah. But the thing is, Once I mean, it's, probably it's, be third it's, for me. It's, it's, Actually, it's, Little Women maybe. Oh, Little Women, Little Women's really good. Little yeah, Women yeah. would be right after those three for me. But yeah. it's it's just generally, I think we just defer in what we consider to be a, a, a well-directed film because the Academy, as we've talked about, I think feels like the bigger set pieces, the bigger action pieces, the where things are happening. Yeah. What seem, is Ford seem to Ferrari be doing here? It's absurd <laughs> all the other stuff think, that could have been nominated. I think that it's just, it's a mainstream film which has aspirations to be a big crowd pleaser but like there was um, a farewell while also there supposedly was, being for adults yeah, there are better films there are <laughs> dozens of films that should have been nominated before but they were like there are way better like, Christian Bale so they're like oh my god it has but, to be um, it's like American Hustle I think with Ford v Ferrari mm. there's maybe it's one of the last Fox films right I think there's maybe the sense oh, that there's something the, at stake Disney um, Disney Disneyization like, yeah it? yeah I think there's this maybe the sense that there's something at stake that if this film isn't rewarded and recognized, then we'll just lose expensive, like more than $5 million, $10 million movies made for adults and to please a crowd. Fun fact, the last film to be released under Fox Pictures, 20th Century Fox, is The Call of the Wild. In 1935, the last film to be released under 20th Century Fox Pictures was Call of the Wild. And uh, was it Fox Pictures or 20th Century Films? Before it became 20th Century Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was was it Fox, though? Yes, it was like the previous. Yeah, Yeah, because Fox merged with 20th Century Pictures, and now they're called 20th Century Pictures again. It's great. Yeah. Um, I think that Wait, Fox. There's another version of Cold Wild. Yeah, there's a new 70, one. Yeah, there's a new one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the Fox brand is just so associated with the Murdoch Empire and Fox News that we're Disney... going to get to Murdoch and Fox News in a little bit. Don't right. Worry, we're a bombshell. Right. Well, D- Disney wanted to, I think, just and get away ail- from that branding because it's too toxic. Ailing Empire. Yeah, it makes sense. When Fox, for, for most Americans, you hear Fox and you think of of like Bill O'Reilly and stuff. Yeah. So Roger that. <laughs> yeah, um, we are talking that was about pretty good. We're, we're, we're talking about a much nicer person called Roger in a beautiful day in the neighborhood. But now we are talking about the gentleman, not ourselves, the new Guy Ritchie film. Oh, uh, Glenn, Glenn, Glenn. Uh, so oh, come on. I mean, actually, you're the only gentleman here. I don't oh, think we qualify. No, I think we're not gentle. You do. You do, Chris. I see Chris with this like Charlie Hunnam glare just staring across the table at me. So um, yeah, we're I'll all gentlemen it. here. I, I'm usually not described as a gentleman, but I'll take it. Um, yeah. Neither any of the people. Neither should any of the people in this film. Dear me. Um, oh, I see it. I, I reckon. I reckon Colin Farrell was a bit of a gentleman. <laughs> Colin Farrell was the best thing about this. And we'll get Colin to Farrell that. is such a, such a great actor these days. He's a credit to any film with him. He's the best thing about. Name one Colin Farrell from the past several years that isn't the 
he, wait, he has the, the best thing. Oh, God. Fantastic Beasts. God. Oh, uh, he was the best thing about Actually, it. Actually, in Fantastic Beasts, it, I felt such a. a it was elevated vibe of him. when Colin Farrell turned into Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, really? You had a perfect <laughs> actor to play a villain here, and then you just <laughs> yeah. threw it away. For Johnny Depp. Great, great, great work, guys. Uh, Johnny Depp's not in this, but Colin Farrell is. It's a new Guy Ritchie film. It is also starring Hugh Grant, Henry Golding, Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Eddie Marsden, Michelle. Oh, I'm sorry. Dockery. Dockery, yep. Sorry, I'm the. the From or, Downton or, or, Abbey. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy Strong. All right, let's get a describe the plot but all i've written here is accents um so is it is, that, about, is that your one note on the film one note of the plot yeah um <laughs> but also like matthew mcconaughey's accent just what is it actually it, it's, it, right. it, no, it's a mix between <laughs> london and southern american because he's been they establish his character he's been living there since college so that worked for me i, I, I did like the accents. it is about a bunch of people with accents i.e <laughs> gangsters in the competitive marijuana and drug empires throughout also, London and the UK. I love the euphemisms for like, call it everything else except marijuana. Yeah, a, a lot of this film was not in English. Let's let's face it. <laughs> At least anything that broadly resembles English. Um, I, I did appreciate uh, at one point there were subtitles and thank you. We needed those. Uh, <laughs> Which part you, was that? It was when they're describing the volume of cash, like a oh, hundred yeah. million versus a, a half a yeah. Right, right, trillion, right. Yeah, and, and, half and, a billion. Excuse me. I just, yeah, and but it's just generally, I was like, okay, so these are this is the word in the street. I get it. Okay. So it is about these, uh, you know, enforcers and drug kingpins who all jockeying for influence. Matthew McConaughey, who's been doing it for a long time, wants to give it up and retire to the country. And however, in trying to sell his business, he encounters uh, a lot of trouble, and a lot of the story is retold in Henry Sugar esque way between <laughs> a meeting between Charlie Hunnam's enforcer, Muscle Man, and Hugh Grant's what dodgy Muscle Man from, from regular yeah. show. Oh god! I, I would love it if he were in this movie. He would fit right in place. There's a lot of people who need to. There's a lot of people who would love to be cast. Look, I, I'm not a big Guy Ritchie fan, but if he called me up to like be in my movie, I'd, I'd, I'd probably find Actually, my best London accent. I, I, I was do thinking it. like Charlie Hunnam could be replaced by like Rick Mayall. Please don't replace Charlie Hunnam in anything. It's great. I, I think I, I think, like a Lord Flashheart energy. <laughs> We're like, I, woof, woof. I think anyone would want to be in this kind of film because it's such a light, fun film. Like that's what it aims to be: yeah. fun, light. Accessible, mainstream, I do breezy. Think this is better than. It's my. I have to go back and rewatch Lockstock and Snatch. It's my. I favorite think it's better than those for sure. Film easily. Uh, favorite Richie film after Man from Uncle. I, I. That's not a big praise. I'm not a big Guy Ritchie. I'm not fan. a big Guy Ritchie fan either. But uh, this reminded me of Man from Uncle and how much fun I had with it. And it's reminded me of Man from Uncle because there's a reference to Man from Uncle. There is. There's, there's a lot of meta stuff going on here. Yeah. Uh, I think commentary script about Hollywood script himself. And script and yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, Hugh Grant, after his role as Phoenix Buchanan in in Paddington Two, this is my favorite Hugh Grant performance. He puts on an unrecognizable accent uh, playing this gangster. He's absolutely hilarious. Uh, he's he's uh, half serious, half just taking the piss out of like Guy Ritchie Cockney stereotypes. Yeah. Um, Charlie Hunnam is very noticeably restrained at the scenes where he's strange out. for me to hear Charlie Hunnam talking in an in an English accent. Yeah. Well, but he also is, he, is I know he is British, yeah. Yeah. This isn't his natural accent. But yeah. uh, obviously the association is with Sons of Anarchy and other films, but he's natural But also like his, yeah, natural weird, is English. Weird sexual tension between Hugh Grant and Charlie Hunnam throughout the whole film. <laughs> that was just like well, it was very I it was made very this. explicit <laughs> at at a point. Yeah. Charlie Hunnam has the best well, well I do think Colin Farrell's the best thing about him. We'll get back to that. 
Uh, Charlie Hunnam has the best scene in this film in a, in a council flat, uh, which goes into it turns into a foot chase, and oh. it's just him intimidating the people yeah, around him with his physical with his physicality. This is a strange film to talk about because we could just list a whole lot of set pieces and sequences. Yeah, the train, <laughs> the train exactly great. throughout. Um, this film is basically freewheeling nonsense. It's yeah, it's yeah. a and that's not a criticism. Yeah, um, I yeah. don't think he's that interested in themes or messages. It's basically <laughs> a very well constructed <laughs> sequence of uh, ridiculous twists and turns involving gangsters, sometimes ending in bloody violence. And and the most ridiculous thing, which um, was so absurd, it made me laugh. Which let's just say involved a pig. Right, that whole sequence was oh, outrageous. It's oh so, my God. but it's but it, also very David Cameron <laughs> kind of vibe. Black Mirror. Yeah. Black Mirror, yeah. But yeah, it's not... Um, I w- yeah, I wondered about the David Cameron reference. But it, it's violent, but never so violent that it's going to put off a large section of the audience, uh, actually, which I think it, is by design. It, it, There's it's, one it's, very sad death that is played very soberly, and all the others are just, oh, yeah, gangsters will do gangster. But actually, yeah. it's quite the opposite. I think the build-up is so, like, magnified. And, like, you know, what actually happened is, like, you know... And it's this very classic Guy Ritchie thing where he's like, I'm going to like set all these things in motion and then you got to figure out which of them is actually going to thread I'm going to pull yeah. to make sure which of these things are actually yeah, going to blow. Yeah, it's such an overload of style. It's not endearing, but sometimes when he commits and it's done well and well-structured, it's entertaining. I think it is for the most part here. The yeah. plot is pretty cleverly strung together. As yeah. you say, the way that there's all, all these things that could yeah. result Oh, except in for... Oh, but... It, did anyone... Did anyone sil- rem- okay, does, does, does anyone remember that terrible Kevin Costner film... Mr. Brooks from several years back. I never saw it. It was, it was every awful. Every Kevin Costner film. He makes great it. films, and most of them, no, a lot of them are terrible. Uh, and a lot of them were for like a good 30 years ago, granted. But uh, in Mr. Brooks, there's a terrible explanation where he says, no, no, but I just succeeded because I'm basically superman. I can do all these things just without anyone seeing me. Right. And um, there's, there's a character who has to give a similar explanation towards the end of this film, and it just comes off as it breaks the internal logic of this universe, and that annoyed me. The rest of the plotting I felt was quite distinct, especially with the yeah. story within a story within a story. Oh, wait, is this actually happening? Uh, and a lot of, uh, there's an element of you have to discern what is false commentary, and I like that. It's working at a layer that Guy Ritchie films generally aren't, and I appreciated that. I mean, it's the unreliable narrator aspect, and I think Hugh Grant adds a lot to that, and especially not just what's on the page it's just him being slimy which is so much fun i mean i i don't know i'm, I'm not s- is having a lot of fun yeah. these days and he's just doing things which i was just <laughs> going against type. Be plucked if oh. i were to lie <laughs> oh my god yeah he's, he's definitely got the best lines and and you know it's just uh, some really expensive scotch colin farrell though. colin farrell he is so good he's this street <laughs> thug who is has like a heart of gold he's, and he's like, trying to i mean no, he's, 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 I don't, he's, he's, he's a coach a, he's, right? he's a boxing coach he's, he's a boxing, boxing coach I, the idea i think is that he has the connection with the streets because he probably came up from the streets and he talks to kids from the streets and works with yeah. them yeah. but he also aspires to being a gentleman yeah. exactly uh, also something using something more akin to his natural accent i think richie more generally said just you guys just do what you're yeah. comfortable with. Obviously, Hugh Grant went in the other direction. He's yeah. going crazy. But uh, Ch- Colin Farrell sounds more like Colin Farrell in this than most of his movies. Yeah. He's so funny. Colin Farrell is one of the best actors of his generation. Yeah. 
easily. Absolutely. He, th- remember when he was in a bunch of crappy mainstream uh, oh. like uh, hero roles, and everyone thought he was bad? Well, well, the, there was to- a Total Recall with Kate. Oh, that was <laughs> terrible. Right. I, I saw the. I'm sorry. I know you love Kate Beckinsale. I was at the London premiere of that, so I saw Colin Farrell just featuring from us. I was like, oh my god, it's Colin Farrell and Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you were looking at Kate Beckinsale, but it's okay. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, she's pretty great. Um, so, and she's a great, she's a fantastic actress. I, I really, I show her films. We're excellent. talking about. I wish she was in this. The I, there, there weren't. There was nothing. There weren't uh, many women in this film. It passed That's the Bechdel test, mix. but <laughs> barely. Right. But it, uh, I think, it, made actually, a, it actually made a point to pass the Bechdel test because the one conversation between two women, they very explicitly name each other, even though they don't need to. And I wonder if um, that was by design. I've seen some critics <laughs> raise the, this point um, that they said oh this film is is it racist is it is it um i think i do think guy Ritchie's is kind of trying to see what he can get away with i mean in terms of like you know henry golding's character is pretty much described as a chinese james bond they use a, the, yeah the the, the chinese oh, actually his here. second best role he's fantastic in this he is really good in this yeah but yeah i definitely think other roles. with the the chinese characters in this guy Ritchie is kind of um I think he's trying to see if he can get away with a lot of Asian racist jokes. Uh, but also, similarly, but depictions also of Russians. Oh, wait, we, we need we need some people who will appear like to be terrifying gangsters. Just bring in Russians. Just call them yeah, Russians. But, Russians. Yeah, but, but that's the thing. I, I think this this is like equal opportunity. Not <laughs> quite. Know. Not quite. But but definitely. Like, like, okay, who are the think groups that are offended? Russians, Jews, uh, obviously the British, Af- the African, Irish, the uh, African Americans, uh, or, or whatever. Like you know, the, the supposedly uh, diverse the African English people. African yeah, English people. So yes. The thing is that the um, the stuff involving the the black British kids, I thought was actually really good. The, also, the rap video, yeah. the rap video was hysterical. <laughs> yeah. It was it was his, it was hysterical, and um, it speaks to something that's good about this film, which is the way that. Uh, technology has been made part of the narrative yeah. because a lot of films these days struggle to keep up with the current world we yeah. live in. And but in this Twitter kind of thing, and like yeah, yeah, there's plot threads about yeah. we're posting this on social media. Fact is, look, if, if someone um, sees something crazy in public, kids get to take out their phones. Exactly, That's what happens. and the it way, becomes an integral part of the plot. Yeah, the way that that, that was made part of a plot. I have found really it's impressive. It's a hilarious effect with Charlie Hunnam's, let's just say, negotiating skills when it comes to um, dealing with the social media aspect. It's, yeah. I mean, it's bits in the trailer, but it still packs quite a laugh. But also, it's funny how they call it, you know, the social media aspect. And like, and it's also very... It's, it's interesting in that sense where it's clearly like these people are speaking in a really hyper-stylized vocabulary. Uh, well, that's just how British people spoke. I don't think so. No, it's, it's really but, 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 it, but it's also interesting because, but there is an interesting political commentary in there because uh, Matthew McConaughey's character's main uh, way of how he survives is by basically taking care of rich people's estates. But Richie's always had this commentary where a lot of it, uh, the negativity and problems with um, illegality, flow down and aren't policed by the persons who are supposed to be in charge and the persons who are supposed to be responsible and, and whether it be by setting an example or just using their money for good yeah. and there's very pointed shots at the English nobility yeah. in so this I, film I, at the royals as well yeah. so, so yeah. I, I don't think it's as freewheeling as we'd like to say like, oh, yes it's a happy-go-lucky kind of narrative but it's called still the gentleman for a reason there's, there's a cleverness to the construction yeah. for sure there's yeah. been some thought put into it it feels um, like more like an Irvine Welsh kind of blend a little bit yeah, yeah mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of with that kind of pointed barbs uh, yeah. there, there's 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 a lack of law enforcement in this film yeah, yeah. Where were the where were the cops? I, I, don't, I don't think they exist. Where were the police? <laughs> yeah, they, it, it, it's, it's like it reminds me of what self policing gangster the, the universe. Patrick Swayze film Roadhouse, where the cop comes in at the very end. It's like police here. We're here to you know 
get to address the crime. Oh, great. And that, that didn't even happen here. I, I, I didn't, yeah, because there was no just cop wandering around surly. We're going to get you, you beer baron. There, that. there are like open shootouts and nothing happens. Yeah, that's true. There yeah, are it's Guy Ritchie's London. It's fine. There are a few <laughs> moments in this film where, especially towards the beginning, where um, he's so aware of how clever he's being that I think it it tips a little bit into smugness. There's a bit a, oh, yeah. moments I, I, that I, I, I found the kind of cocky attitude behind it a little bit off-putting, but for the most part, once you set, once you get past, <laughs> it's it, it, what it is is, but it, it does, and then you get to the point where Colin Farrell just has that there's wide eyes in every scene, and it, it, like I yeah, can't believe we're, yeah, we're, we're going enough, along for the ride. Yeah, of, there's enough genuine fun that you can get past the kind of like forced you're going to have a fun time. Look at how clever I am attitude that leads you into the narrative. Yeah. Oh, so, gentlemen, there's not that much to say about it, yeah, really. Look, look, it's actually, it's, it's if a if fun you like film. Guy Ritchie, you should go see it. If you're a casual guy, if you like the Man from Uncle, you may lo- you will, will likely enjoy this. I mean, the, the only part. other Guy Ritchie movie I haven't seen, Revolver, which I've heard is an interestingly weird meta it's one. Not, it, okay, I'm not liking it. I, I, I remember just not enjoying. But the thing it. is, right. this is I, definitely all, definitely a return right. of form. I mean, this is not Aladdin. This is not, and it's not King Arthur. Uh, oh yeah, oh, man. Yeah, Londinium. This is not Londinium. Thank God. It's, yeah, it's, it's better than Aladdin. Yeah, yeah. It's more creative. Um, oh, it's it, way better. than And he's working to his strengths, which yeah. he doesn't in Aladdin. Yeah. The only films by Guy Ritchie that I really like are probably uh, uh, this and Man from Uncle. Not even like rock and roller. Not even rock and roll. Yeah, Definitely not, not rock, rock and roll. roll. I, I, re- I watched that for the first time actually quite recently, and God, that's awful. Lockstock and Snatch. I need to. I need to revisit. It's been twenty years. It's been way too long. Lockstock is pretty amateurish. I don't. I don't, I don't remember enjoying it at the time, but uh, it's been long enough. I need to fucking mm. yeah, touch it. Jason Statham was the thing. Yeah, that was Jason. Those were Jason Statham's. That was his big break. Yeah. Can you imagine Jason Statham coming back and doing another Guy Ritchie? He, he, he would have written he, the role. He, I Jason could totally Statham see him being in The Gentleman. Too, I mean, I, I would actually Unless, prefer yeah. him to doing that rather than another Fast and Furious. Because God. Yeah. Oh, um, dude. Oh, who God, wouldn't? They just released the teaser trailer for the teaser trailer today for Furious Nine. It's happening. Wait, what? Yeah. Fast it's, Nine in Fast Nine in outer space. Yes. <laughs> uh, I can only hope so. <laughs> No, are, no. are they? Is there time travel? Do they have bullet time now? Like, what's yeah? Fast, I, fast, how are we expanding the franchise? Come, fast ten, fast ten year seed built. I hope it yeah. comes. Uh, yeah, this is stuff Chris and I came up with a little while ago. These are the uh, titles we want for uh, the Fast and Furious franchise. Um, we, we yeah. Once they get to eleven, it's going to be hard. Uh, like fast eleven. <laughs> like yeah, I can't think of any puns. Flevin, uh, fast. The furious, uh, fast. Uh, I don't know. I, I am literally McLovin McLovin Will they care by that point? Would it just be will like they, yeah. Fast and Furious go, uh, Give us money <laughs> they, they Search for more money well, Actually like they, they, they call This one's just F9 no. <laughs> F9 The teaser trailer Teaser trailer says F9 The Fast Saga Is it seriously The Fast Saga that's now? What that's oh, what God. they're calling no. it No It's a saga The Fast Saga I love that I love that Actually I was thinking Picking up on Arise of Skywalker discussion how everything has to be about lineage why is there all these films where characters have to are discovering the lineage that they have kids certainly the last it was Dominic yeah. Toretto why I'll tell you it, why. I mean, it's, it's, it's a compulsive a theme because it's but why is it ma- okay. always it's, always the line from it's not about family anymore it's, no, it's, about, tell you it's why. about friend to family to, to steal the line I think it was Matt Dolisides who pointed this out soap operas were a huge thing in the mainstream <laughs> um, soap operas have gone away but they've been absorbed into everything else 
um, contemporary entertainment because it's so franchised because it needs to have more and more sequels and, and things that stretch and expand the universe more and what works easily to do that soap opera tricks like my long lost son yeah. suddenly that creates a new intrigue for a, a new oh. installment oh and it expands God. the series out with new characters yeah. so more and more soap opera tricks are going to get integrated into these mega franchise sagas oh my god Letty oh my god you forgot your memory's gone your memory's back again oh yeah F- Fast and the Furious has been using soap opera tricks for a while now yeah. but yeah. Fast 5 I was fine with we, Fast we 5 we all need okay can I spoil what happens in the third movie I think anyone listening oh, about Fast and Furious 3 the Tokyo, Tokyo Drift, Drift? yeah um, I think we can oh, oh, we're, I think we, we can we're, talk we're about gonna, this we're going to spoil Tokyo Drift guys is that the Spoiler. Gal Gadot one the, the best one yeah. no she's in 4, 5 and 6 oh. surely we're going to bring back Han Solo sooner or later right yeah, yeah mechanized <laughs> like me- mechanized time yeah, travel that's his name like, his name is Han Solo so, yeah that's right oh, he's going to say <laughs> guys I'm back you know I knew I you know we planted my body double. And it's like, it's like Jason Statham, why didn't you? Um, wh- why is it he dead? Oh, uh, reasons because I went in the back. They did this in twenty four, and it was so bad. I was Tony Almeida. Yeah, Jason Statham can say I actually, you know, was always good and never meant to kill him. <laughs> but, but the Sandman from Spider Man Three was we also together. standing beside the car, and he stops yes. me. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Oh. No, I think at this point Jason Statham would say like. I don't really know. I think it's part of the script and people will buy it. He's just going to yeah. shrug and everyone's going to go with it, which actually would be hilarious. But uh, <laughs> like, I'm, you, you I'm, think I'm, I know? You think I know? I'm also doing this. No, I'm, I'm done at this point. Um, the next <laughs> next film, I'm sure we're going to cover Fast 9. The next from Outer Space. If, if, if they use it, you have pity money. Fine, the next time, fine. Uh, fine. We are fine. The next film we're talking about is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yeah, so this is about Fred Rogers, who hosts uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. If you're American, you know this, and you probably love Fred Rogers. But it's a bit of a strange one to release over here, because it's a cultural reference that we only know because it's referenced so much in other media. Um, Nicest man in the world. All I really knew about Mr. Rogers growing up. Yeah, he's uh, basically... I I kind of lived in the States, and like still. Right. I, I think Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood... It's kind of like play school, except um, if play school was the brainchild of one one person for fifty years, basically. Um, he is a very genteel, kind of disarmingly nice guy who talks directly to the camera to children and uh, talks to them sometimes about important issues of the day um, but in a way that he thinks kids can understand. Um, and this film is based on an Esquire article, which was a profile of Mr. Rogers, which is a great article if you want to read it. Um, but in this film, uh, Lloyd Vogel is the name of the fictitious character who has been based on the real Esquire author, whose name I've forgotten. Um, and it's basically a family drama about Lloyd Vogel, played by Matthew Riss. Um, and his from the Americans, great show. Yeah, uh, his estranged relationship with his father, played by Chris Cooper, um, and how he is disarmed by the niceness of Fred Rogers, and how he is healed by him in the process of putting together an Esquire article, played by the second nicest man in the universe. Yeah, yeah. 
I look. This film is the natural evolution of Tom Hanks into becoming the daddest dad that ever dad. <laughs> yeah, the nicest, the nicest man in the world, Tom. Uh, Hanks. You know, after after Sully and like you know, he's just be- doing so many dad movies now. He's just like a proxy back dad. David S. Pumpkins. <laughs> he, he's been playing so many nice guy characters for so long. But it's also like it's a natural energy that he gives off. I don't think he even has to try to be nice anymore. Tom Junod, by the way, that's the name of the Esquire writer. Yeah. But and it kind of makes me miss the kind of more edgy Tom Hanks, like from Punchline and like his younger days where he would do some not nice roles. How could he was he, big. He played a great gangster in Cloud Atlas. Yeah. And get Road to Petition from earlier tonight. Uh, one of the few villain roles. Um either the circle a couple of years ago was it especially good. I wasn't a fan of Charlie Wilson's War, but he was more well, morally ambiguous in that one. Uh he's done a few bad guy roles but he's uh, not, 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 he's selective about this yeah um, but it, it just feels like he is there's certain acting muscles that like he doesn't need to flex anymore because it just kind of feels like he's going to be good in this but i think his acting acting range is not challenged and I, you don't I see think, anything different well i i definitely agree that this is stuff we've seen tom hanks do before but i think he's really good in it i, I, I think I agree. that you can see um I can't fault like, him for like retreading same ground if it's actually good. It, yeah. it is actually good. Um, Fred Rogers is a very strange man. He's he's strange because he's so nice and he's <laughs> off-puttingly, disarmingly nice. And Tom Hanks manages to capture that and the, the weirdness of being confronted by someone who is that calm and that nice, as well as projecting an inner sadness when he has to. He made this character believable when it could easily have just been a caricature. A caricature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um I, he he radiates the right amount of warmth, and what carries this film is the real life character of Mister Rogers, who is a very inspiring person who has a lot of. Um, and I think the film kind of does the right thing in terms of his narrative choice. That it is still a family drama, but it is essentially about Matthew Reese's life. Yeah, and yet Mister Rogers' influence is what actually. So in a way, it is like you know what Mister Rogers would be doing in his daily routine is like you know let me try and fix all these kids or fix their problems instead it's an adult now that he has to yeah but i i think the i actually disagree i think the film miscalculated a little bit here and i think that aspect of how mr rogers impact upon lloyd um is a little bit overstated Um, because for me the most interesting thing about the film was watching tom hanks and learning more things about mr rogers whereas the the main focus of the film is mostly Matthew Reese. Is ma- mostly Matthew Reese and his re- uh, his relationship with his family, right? Um, but for me, Mister Rogers is kind of mysterious. In, in yeah, he, there is w- uh, one level of remove that you always you never get to yeah. like, see what he's thinking. What never is in a psychology that that's, that's right kind of Be- out of bounds because it's trying to put us in the mind of, of Lloyd, trying to understand this guy, and that's interesting. Whereas the family drama stuff feels a little bit constructed to me like it feels a little it's familiar to yeah. many kind of estranged father-son stories but also like it wasn't that like you know crippling with self-doubt kind of thing as much as lloyd kind of feels i think i'm like oh well it's not that great <laughs> like you know it's i know i know it's it, it may seem like your world is ending but it's not really you know. Yeah, he he. Some scene, some of the family scenes, I think, were really well done. Um, I think I thought the relationship with his wife, played by Susan yeah. Kalechi Watson, yes, who, um, was oh. was really uh, genuine. Yes. Like, um, I, I, th- those moments rang true. The stuff with the dad, um, 
it was too many obvious parallels, but I was just like, oh my god, this is too convenient, and this is like, yeah, it's oh it's too god. it's constructed. Yeah, it's like, oh, you need the dad figure because you know you're now seeing yeah. Mr. Rogers, the the kind of right proxy dad. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, so much dadness I, in this movie. Right, and I think it didn't need to be as um as loud the, because I thought the parallels between this guy's life and Mr. Rogers, yeah, were, um, were obvious. Yeah, they're obvious just through the, these things all being featured in the one film, but. Um, it, it goes out of its way to make these connections. Yeah, like there's this right dream the sequence, oh, which God. is super on the nose and trying to bridge the two things <sighs> together, which are obviously connected. And it doesn't feel dreamlike. I don't, I, one of my pet hates in movies is <laughs> dream scenes, which are actually just a way to speed the plot along. And because yeah. dreams it, have it, a very it, peculiar texture to it, them, it's right? It's mostly a flashback. It's not even a dream sequence. It's not really a dream, yeah. But it's not like, you know, um, just watch some Lynch and learn how to do a dream sequence properly. Right. Um, Lies. We'll talk about this next week. Uh, but... <laughs> It's it's difficult to. I I think it's just that the the as I was saying before, there's so much mystery and strangeness and intrigue to Mister Rogers, um, and how beautiful the way he perceives the world and relates to the world is versus the much more obvious material. Um, yeah, I mean, it draws attention to the weakness of the Tom family Hanks, drama yeah, stuff. Despite Tom Hanks's brilliant performance, at no point did I feel Mister Rogers was a real person. Because it does still feel like he's someone on the page. At no point did you really understand why is he so nice. Like, what makes him that nice? I think I th- I, I was okay with that personally. Really? Yeah, I was okay with that because I, I, think I was just suspicious by that point. <laughs> <You> I was, <laughs> you know, like, well, who is this? Why is this guy so nice? To me? You know, I, think, I think a lot of people who haven't been brought up with the show have the immediate re- response of suspicion. <laughs> like, how can how can this person be so gentle I, and so but, but that's patient? Al- there's also a commentary on us and just the world we live in. I think we live in so much despair and there's so much obvious suspicion yeah. of, of everyone's motive around us that when we see someone who's genuinely nice our first reaction is like and, and the film what is, what is wrong with you yeah i think the <laughs> film is commenting on that and i honestly wish there was just more about tom uh, yeah. Lo- sorry not tom lloyd and mr rogers fred rogers yeah, like, I, actually, I, I could have spent scene, more the, the time with together them. are not that many which is yeah. which is sad because that's when you know, I, it's this mental chess game that's happening where yeah, exactly. Lloyd is trying to figure him out and trying to trick him and be like, oh no, reveal more of yourself. But And I think I think the way that um Lloyd's inner life relates with what Mr. Rogers is doing and how his presumptions about the world are challenged would could be drawn out better through more scenes about the two of them together versus so much about his relationship with his dad. Because again, it we've seen the, this story in so many films. The, yeah. the the estranged dad. Um, I I know it's a very yeah, universal you, story, yeah, you, but you we need to find new ways to tell the story yeah, you, if we're going go to keep telling it. And like you know, you find out that your outer life is mirroring your inner personal crisis, yeah, and yeah. you figure out your inner personal crisis through your. It's very external, neat. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's very traditional. It's a very Sundance construct. It is quite Sundance, yeah, yeah. But it's very neat in how all the pieces yeah. fit together. But at the same time. Um, very heartfelt. Like I'm, I'm yeah, very heartfelt. Like, yeah, I, I recommend the film. It's um, not insincere. It's very sincere. It's very sincere. Which, um, yeah. And I, I just think it, it's the character of Mr. Rogers yeah. even more that I think Tom Hanks's performance is good enough to do justice to it. But I think it's the character of Mr. Rogers that gives the film its drive and makes it work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's about, that's about yeah, it. It's it's an interesting film to to reflect upon after you've seen it. So yeah, we'd we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Marielle Heller, three for three with good films now. Um, uh. She made also last year um can you ever forgive me and she also oh, directed yes. diary of a teenage girl and all these films are good so yeah. keep making good films you're just 
films because you did did good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I so saw it's someone who was not nominated for best director, but Tom Hanks was nominated for best actor. For this. I, I will win. say um, the the lack of nomination for best director speaks to something we were talking about earlier tonight and also previously on the show, which is how uh, directing has to be very loud to be nominated. Now it seems um, yeah. like Marriage Story missed, even though I thought that was beautifully directed, but. Um, think yeah. something like Joker do- gets in because it's more bombastic, regardless of how well directed it is. Okay, so we've, we've been talking with some, you know, half disdain about uh, the Oscars. Is anyone actually is anyone watching it this year? Last year, I uh, I had the day off and f- just found out oh, Oscars are on. Oh, okay, I'll turn yeah. them on. Like what, I was so uninterested that it was just like, oh, okay, I guess I guess I may as well put that on. What day are they on? I think it's February 9th. I'm seeing. Okay, you know what, you know what I'm doing on February 9th? Honest to God, I'm going to see po- the, one of the last screen- public screenings of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Okay. okay. The yeah. the black and white screening of Par- of Parasite is on that day. So really, right, where at? Uh, February ninth. Where? Uh, and at Palace uh, and also Dendi. Uh, why? I don't un- I don't get it. I don't understand why we want Parasite in black and white. I d- I don't know, but it just seems like an excuse to go and see it again, and it's black and white. So it's I'd rather just watch the original film. Yeah, that's true. again. Did any of you watch the the black and white Fury Road? No, no. Neither did I. I, re- I rewatched it. Yeah. The version yeah. I, I like because the movie is beautiful and I'd like to see the movie. Yeah, it's a strange trend for sure. Yeah, but you know, if it, b- because apparently Parasite has been in cinemas, in Australian cinemas at least, for quite a long time, which is. And it could get a boost if it does well at the Oscars. Yeah. We'll see. Well, it will, of course. It'll do. It's mm-hmm. Bong, Bong is now on the Vanity Fair cover. You think it's going to win the Best Picture? I think it could win Best Picture. I think it's the Dark Horse. I think 1917 will win. I think don't. Parasite could win. Don't. And, th- and if it's don't. not those two, it's going to be that Tarantino. Yeah, no, it's not it's judgment on quality. That's a judgment I think will win. It's going to be Ford versus Ferrari, guys. For, for, <laughs> <laughs> for <laughs> Parasite to actually win, I think it has a, a crazy amount of momentum behind it, but I think it's such a huge hurdle to actually clear that. Yeah, the, the foreign language one. Think about the fact that, okay, everyone agrees the performances are amazing, but no acting nominations yeah. for Parasite. Even though it won the Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Ensemble, which is huge for, you know, remember these are American actors celebrating American act, acting in American film. And, and, if you want, I mean, and if you want to compare this to La La Land, which is comparable in some respects, let's remember a couple of things. Sam Mendes is a much more celebrated director than Damien Chazelle. Damien, that's no special on Chazelle. He's very good. And also, and I know you, you might, might disagree, but at, the, at least in my view, and the critical, a lot of the cr- uh, general critics who will, who will vote in the Academy take the view that 1917 is much better than La La Land. General critics. What are they? Uh, general, general, you see what I mean is general critical consensus. I know. But yeah. and my, you, I don't think it's better than La La Land, personally. Yeah, I mean, uh, but then Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, Stone can't sing or dance. They're in a that's musical. What is going end of the, on? But, the end of the day, but even the, then, La La Land wasn't that great what? either. Which is waste I'm, I'm not here to say La La Land is a brilliant night. film, but I was much more into the story of La La Land than yeah, I ever was in true. 1917. Um, but yeah, the, the thing about if they love Parasite so much, how did Song Kang Ho miss? Song Kang Ho, yeah, for for an and, acting nomination, and he he's I'm way better than, than yeah, Matt Damon. Or, so maybe yeah, exactly. So maybe that's a sign. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They get in with nominations. Yeah. Matt Damon was nominated for best act what, in the acting category. Really? I, I, one of them from I don't, Ford. Did, I don't really think hold he on. was. I'm looking up the. I, yeah, I don't think it was, it was. Hold on, it was Brad Pitt, Tom Hanks. Uh, it, it was basically. It was a joke that it was basically 1998 all over again. Joaquin, yeah, it's Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. No, one of them. One of them did. I think. I maybe Christian Bale. I don't think so. I'm no, no. Um, there's there's supporting actor Anthony Hopkins, Brad Pitt, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, Tom Hanks. Best actor, Jonathan Price, Adam Driver, Antonio Banderas, Joaquin Phoenix, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Maybe it's that um, Song Kang Ho Band- couldn't get in because, Ban- Antonio, you know. Antonio Banderas with Pain and Glory. 
Yeah, yeah. That's that's not bad. But it's like pa- Pain and Glory couldn't get in for best original screenplay, though 1917 could. When uh, probably because it's it's just really hard for multiple foreign language films to get in. But uh, but perhaps the f- oh, and, Song uh, Kang Ho not getting uh, in Motivar means that Parasite's not, not, not in the best director running either. No. Wow. No, so yeah, I, I, again, I'm going to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, <laughs> on the ninth. And or watch uh, the Eurovision decides Australia, which is Osan. That would be much better. And and uh, we have that Bastille Day one from France. Portrait Lady is not in the. Oh yeah, Les Misérables. Yeah. Because Les um, the France decided not to submit Les Misérables. Oh, Sorry, Portrait yes, Lady. Sight unseen. I love you, France, but why? Yeah, but maybe they maybe they were maybe they were right. Maybe they said this one's more up the Academy's alley because this one is socially conscious, whereas the other one is just a slow, pretty art house film. Maybe that's their thinking. Hmm. So the next film we are discussing... What, what a miserable decision. The last film we're discussing <laughs> is Bombshell, a very uh, deliberately named film. So I have not Roach. seen this one, so I'll let you guys have at it. It is the new film from Austin Powers director, Jay Roach. <laughs> <laughs> it okay. is about... It's not the most flattering. <laughs> well, just, just, I don't know what it's going to know Jay Roach is. Meet so the parents' director. To meet the parents. Yeah, I like to meet the parents. Hey, what's wrong with Austin Powers? The first one's a classic. The second one is also really, really good. Okay, all right, man of mystery, go for it. And this is based on the true story of the um, allegations at the center of the Roger Ailes Fox News scandal. Um, starring is uh, a, with a, looking much like a Charlie Theron as Megan Kelly, Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson, John Lithgow plays Roger Ailes. Incredible range that actor, as well as the aforementioned performers. Malcolm McDowell is very well cast as Murdoch. It stars Margot Robbie, Alison Janney, Kate McKinnon, Connie Britton, Alice Eve, and Darcy Carden from The Good Place, which is ending this week. Dear me, yeah. um, this Good Place is a lot better than this, and it recounts um, the scandal. Uh, I. Th- we talked. We covered Hustlers earlier in the year, and following The Big Short, it seems that there's a diminishing returns, and everyone's trying to be a, something akin to it. We saw Hustlers. I'd put I Tonya in this category, though I think I Tonya is a much better film um, than uh, either Hustlers or this. This kind no, of smart-ass no. fourth wall-breaking Scorsese imitation style, and it, I don't have a problem with the technique. It's just it's used haphazardly and sporadically and just randomly but also it, it, it doesn't make it seem irreverent it just brings you out of the film so you're saying what's going on is yeah. Jay Roach just saying I can do what Adam McKay did pretty much I, I feel so yeah but also I mean firstly you're wasting such a good cast uh, Charlie Theron is fantastic she she, yeah, as you said like she, she, she looks like me and Kelly she her micro expressions are out of this world uh, she actually I, I thought deserved an acting nom- nomination uh, but I mean you're just wasting so much potential yeah the, the only thing about this is really good actors get small roles Alison Jenny's played CJ on the West Wing she's an yeah. Academy of War winner now is in all of one scene Connie Britton there's a fair even bit Nicole to do. Kidman oh, uh, the, the, the Nicole Kidman's in quite a bit of it but as is Kate McKinnon Darcy Carden and the Alice Eve they're major actors they yeah. just pop in um, for a little bit it's quite surprising oh, so I Earlier in the year, we talked about the... So last year, we talked about the great uh, trailer. Bombshell's still my favourite trailer from last year, where it's just the one wordless scene where they're in the elevator. And they they showed the best scene in the film yeah. in the trailer. But, but the problem is the most that there's nothing bombshell-like in the film. I mean, the fact is, the film does pull a lot of its punches. There's a lot of cop-outs. Uh, it could have gone into a lot you know more incendiary places to keep using those adjectives which are bombshell like but it, it doesn't it kind of feels like oh okay I don't think we can go there I don't think people are ready for it 
and it's trying to start a much more serious debate about sexism in the workplace. But I, apart from that one sequence, which is tonally so inconsistent from the rest of the film, I don't think it which succeeds. Which sequence? Uh, the, the, the dinner scene and the inner monologues that you get to hear of the, of the women. Uh, when they're All right. Uh, yeah, there's one sequence in the film. It's one of my favorite where yeah. it is a flashback and it is used as, uh, the, in the context of the film, uh, this is used as an example to characters as to what may happen to you yeah. adversely if you report sexual harassment. And it yeah. recounts a story where allegedly a person, uh, a woman was going for a job interview and a reporter, sorry, I do not remember the character and real person's name, um, and she and the the male figure who was in charge of whether to grant her this role, uh, prop- effectively, pr- he propositions her. Yeah, he propositions And you could see her, you could hear her internal commentary and yeah, her an responses. Yeah, it's an kind of psychological monologue that goes on, and, and it's very different to how it's playing out in the real world. It's very much, she, she, so you, to, be, to be all clear, she, uh, he says, like, I do this for you, it's for me, and she's thinking, oh, God, this is happening, or something, this is odd, and oh, she says, oh, what should I say? Okay, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to leave. If you think I was expressing more than a professional relationship, and, and I think that scene and a couple of others that took place contemporaneously in the Fox office go into detail about um, general attitudes to not just how people have often sadly uh, responded to like situations, but attitudes to when people do raise this, whether publicly or um, with individuals, as to attitudes as to whether this should be believed or what circumstances people should be believed. I liked that commentary. I wish it went into more detail. There's also a really good scene in the supermarket where a character lambasts the Gretchen Carlson character and she res- retorts with, you're as good as the way you treat other people, a, a comment to that effect. And that was had that element had a lot of nuance mm-hmm. to it. It but wasn't... Uh, it, the whole film could have been very simply a bashing of Fox News and that showed more sides to the yeah. issue, which I appreciated. But there are those scenes and those types of sequences are few and far between yeah. in this. But so much of this film is actually... You know, I don't know if you watched the TV show Succession. I have, but, no. But it's, it's very much like that, where it kind of becomes more about the Murdoch Empire rather than actually... Uh, what it's the issue that it's trying to deal with. So uh, a lot of it is around Roger Ailes and the myth-making around him. Uh, and it's a good comparative piece to think about. There's a yeah, there's TV also series that we... Russell Crowe. With Russell Crowe, where, where he plays Ros- uh, Roger Ailes. He won the Golden Globe for this. Uh, well, and, and in, in that series, at least, Roger Ailes is depicted in a, in, in a much more, well, a heroic light because he's the game-changer who basically, for the conservative media, and, and basically he's seen as a trailblazer and portrayed in that sense. So it's interesting as a comparative study what John Lithgow's character is portrayed, the same character study but in a very different light. Well, they, they do talk about how the, the impact Roger Ailes and the dynamics with the Murdoch family, which I didn't know too much about and I found very interesting. Uh, the other major piece of criticism is directed by this, predominantly from American commentators. I can comment because I haven't watched Fox News since I lived in the States, and that was some years <laughs> ago. Was I just haven't really have an access, had access to it. But the uh, criticism that the film pulls its punches specifically regards yeah. to Megan Kelly and some of the other contributors and portrays them in an uh, overly heroic light. Um, I can't comment on this because, again, I haven't watched Fox News in a long time, and I'm not so familiar with the story from what surprised from some of the general press I have read. I mean, this but, one could uh, have been a lot more nuanced with what we're trying to say. I mean, there's a lot many sides and angles to the stories and and what happened in those newsrooms, and yet this film becomes a much more simpler kind of quippy take uh, on, on uh, sexism in the workplace kind of thing, which it's, it's not. I mean, and for what it is I didn't feel it was worth, quippy. I'm, and I also felt 
um, some of the key scenes came down to Robbie, and she was very good. At yeah, this. but also it it does kind of feel like oh, we got to make a point here. And it's not wrong to make your point. It's just they um, make it very explicitly at times like, when it could have been told more Are we, are we supposed through. to... I mean, uh, once again, we come back to this problem. Are we supposed to laud a film for making a point or it being an actually engaging film yes, that can also make a point in, in the process? It should be done through <laughs> narrative. More through narrative, I agree. Yeah. Um, just to, to know some of the performances, McDowell was very good yeah. as Rupert Murdoch. You don't see Australian accents done well. <laughs> Murdoch has particular... Australian accent, yeah. um, which has changed given the time he's been in the States, and, and he got up. Also, the guys who played um, James Lachlan Murdoch, they were pretty well yeah. cast. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty entertaining. And, and, like that, that felt a little bit SNL, but it w- they were still. But, on the, but point. the thing is, like, it's 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 easy to hate these guys, and yet I think what I would appreciate, and I really did appreciate, was they were still able to bring some complexity to their portrayals, where they're like, oh, I can see where they're coming from, even though they're clearly slimy, you know. I wasn't expecting that level of nuance from this film. Well, at least from the Murdoch... That's the thing. I think this is actually a better character study of the Murdoch empire and the relationship of Roger Ailes to that family than actually what it's trying to do. So there are competing narratives at play here where I feel like it doesn't succeed as well as this kind of expose of uh, what happened in Fox News and sexism in the workplace. But I think it's still a better film and it tries to talk about dynamics between the Murdoch family and Roger Ailes and how that kind of inner circle... And with O'Reilly too, when they... Bring in yeah. uh, uh, a mi- Bill O'Reilly is a minor character in this, and they bring in the Obviously, he has been uh, accused of um, so many terrible acts. Mm. Uh, I I think that's a s- I, I was fascinated by the dynamic. I think it's a separate story, though. I think that's a story for a yeah, separate I, film. Yeah, I, th- I think this film was competing for like you know what is the central drive of the narrative that the film needs to oh, be. No, at I, I, think. I think the point of the elements with the Murdoch family was simply to highlight this is how you've, you've heard of Rupert Murdoch you may not have heard of Roger Ailes this is how consequential he was in something you have heard of which is Fox News yeah. and yeah so that is Bombshell it is in cinemas now in cinemas for I think I think it's got a few Academy Award nominations yeah. let's check yeah we'll check I, 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 think, I think especially for, for makeup right I mean uh, that that Megan Kelly uh, work was so yeah, actually, it was so uncanny. Yeah, she, um, Charlie Theron. I mean, I was just like, yeah. I'm, I could not recognize her. She was, yeah, she was, she was spot on as me. I mean, and yeah, they were, they were good. Like the performances were good. I referred to SNL earlier, but it doesn't feel like an SNL sketch. So that is Bombshell, and is in cinemas now. In the following week, we'll be covering The Lighthouse, the new film from the Witch, the Witch director Robert Eggers. We are talking about Uncut Gems, Kelly Gang, Dolomite is my name, Two Popes, and uh, What Did Jack Do, the new 17-minute... Is there going to be more than three sentences to say on What Did Jack Do? Probably not. Yeah, it's it's not... I, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's other David Lynch than, fans it's, might it's be. It's better than the house that Jack built. Do, do, do. Uh, I, God, I haven't seen it. It was playing at every art house cinema in Europe. In Eastern Europe, dear me. Um, okay. And yeah, I'm keen to talk about the lighthouse. Uh, some I liked it with some very major reservations. No, uh, it's yeah, yeah, it's, it's 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 definitely a film you can talk about. It's a very talky film. It gives you to think and talk. So they'll be fighting for that one. Pretty sure. Pretty I hope, sure. So we like fighting. We like I like the nineties evening discussion with Hitman tonight. I know. I was surprised, Glenn. I was like, I didn't yeah. think you would defend it so vehemently, but it's okay. It's a good film. We still love you. <laughs> Love you too. Not the right note to end Film Fight Club. Anyway, we have been Film Fight Club. Tune in next week. This has been Glenn Fallon, Chris Evans, and Rotten Rue. Let us know what you want us to fight about. Enjoy movies. Good night. Bye. Bye.